0: You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today.
1: You know, everyone has gratitude inside them. And you you speak to a woman who, who's so thankful to walk five miles for clean water for, for her family. And will do that every day. And she's so thankful to have that clean water. And then you go home and you think, oh, my gosh, I'm so fortunate You know, I should be, I should really have gratitude inside me uh, for a lot of these things I take for granted, because look at what these other people go through. And so everyone has gratitude. You just have to really find it and express it.
0: That was Michael Silvio, a man who is one of a small group of runners who have run full marathons on all seven continents. Yes, including Antarctica. He joins me today to discuss the lessons learned from running these marathons and how each continent taught him different and important lessons. While the conversation is overtly about marathons, what we're really discussing is the inner and outer journey of committing to a big goal and what happens when you do. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Mike, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. You have a really inspiring story. And as we were just talking about in the green room, um, running is one of those things that um, I want to love, but I don't. But I understand why people love it. So thanks for um, coming and sharing your story with with us today.
1: Uh, thanks for having me.
0: Alrighty, so um the extensive talk that we're going to be talking about is running in the marathons that you've done across the seven different continents. Um, but before we get into the how and the story of running, let's go into the why of running. Why did you start um this process of running and, and make the pledge to run across all seven con- or to run on all seven continents?
1: Well, yeah, you know, I was a runner as a kid, so it wasn't completely foreign to me. But like most people in their 20s and 30s, you're working on your career, you're working on your family, you're doing the things that everyone does. And in the course of my journey, I actually became diabetic and was uh, diagnosed with diabetes at 30 years old. So it was adult onset, but it was obviously uh, um, a function of diet and lack of exercise. And so I was starting to get health conscious um, and, and becoming a little more active. When the recession hit in 2009, uh, here in Detroit, we had some pretty hard times, and a lot of my friends lost their jobs. Uh, I was one of the lucky ones, and I only received a, a 10% pay cut, which you know was company-wide where I work, and, uh, and a lot of people experienced that. And it doesn't seem like that much money, 10%, but when it's part of your household budget, it really is. And, uh, I came home one day and said to my wife, the bad news is, uh, we've taken this pay cut, but the good news is I have a solution. I'm going to give up golf. And so I gave up playing golf because I played twice a week and I ate hot dogs and drank beer and of course gained weight. And so I bought uh, a pair of running shoes and started to run. And that was really how the journey started for me was just skidding out and, uh, and and making the most of my time and getting some exercise to replace golf.
0: All right. So obviously there's a big jump between replacing golf and running on seven continents, right? Um, so how did that manifest itself? Well,
1: I, 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 I joined a team and was training, and I ran my first marathon in Cleveland, Ohio, which was – a great experience, loved it. And uh, I was in a position where I traveled a lot for work. And, of course, runners talk about running, no matter where you are. And so I had met some gentlemen on a project, I believe we met in the Czech Republic, but they lived in the Netherlands. And they said, uh, oh, you know, you're a runner, we're runners, and we have a half marathon in our hometown of Venlo. Would You know, if you'd like, let's have our next meeting in Venlo. And we'll all run the half marathon. And I thought, sure, I can, you know, I can run a half marathon wherever I want. And so uh, the, I arranged our next business meeting around this this race. And I ran with them, and I absolutely fell in love with traveling and running. It is a great way to see parts of the world that tourists don't see, a lot of locals don't see. You're 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 on the ground. You're you're experiencing the, the city and the you know just restaurants and where people hang out and running stores and running with people. and I ran this marathon or half marathon and people were were cheering for me. I don't know what they were saying because you know it's, it's the Netherlands they're speaking Dutch. I don't speak Dutch and I just fell in love with it. And when I got home I called a buddy and I said, hey, I've got a meeting in Brazil in, in a month or two let's go run the real marathon. And he said, Hey, I got freaking fire miles. I'm in. And so we flew to Rio de Janeiro and we ran the real marathon. And that was really our first, um, non North American continent for a full marathon. And uh, then you just keep going. Cause you're like, this is the best experience ever.
0: And as you went around the world, like it's, it seems like every continent taught you a different lesson. Um, and so there are a few that I wanna pull out, but give us the broad overview. Seven continents, seven lessons, what were they?
1: Well, yeah, so each each continent was a different experience for me. And each one has a story behind it and each race was different. And so, you know, in North America, I, I count Detroit marathon as my hometown marathon. That's my North American marathon. And that one I learned—it's all about family. No one will support you like your family, and that's important for a lot of people to know and to realize. And also to realize that you need to support your family. And you know, I've got these—I've got a hundred stories about you know each one of these lessons of, of why it's important to me and why it's important to people that I know. Um, and uh, in South America, uh, we had a challenge where the bus dropped us off two miles from the start of the marathon and 20 minutes after the marathon started. So I had to run 28 28 miles and I had to run it a lot faster just to catch up with the other runners because we were literally the last four people. And so, but we were so excited and it became clear to me that if you live with optimism, you can accomplish so much more than you think you can just by having the right attitude, the right perspective on the world around you. Um, Africa was my, was my next continent, and it was probably the continent that changed my outlook on the world more than any place else I've run, right? I mean, I, I've spoken to so many people that have gone to Africa, and, and the one uh, – I went to Kenya, and I ran the Safaricon Marathon, which is part of the Tusk charity – and so we spent time um, not only with the animals, because you're on a, on a large wildlife preserve running, uh, but we also visited water projects and uh, schools, and we talked to people and met with people. And you learn that, you know, everyone has gratitude inside them. And you, you speak to a woman who is so thankful to walk five miles for clean water for, for her family, and we'll do that every day. And she's so thankful to have that clean water. And then you go home and you think, Oh my gosh, I'm so fortunate. You know, I should be. I should really have gratitude inside me uh, for a lot of these things I take for granted. Because look at what these other people go through. And so everyone has gratitude. You just have to really find it and express it. Uh, in uh, in Asia, I was very fortunate to run Tokyo, which is one of the world majors. Uh, we have six majors in the marathon world and uh, I went into it with a lot of injuries and that's where it really came to me. And, and this is a reflection of my professional life also is that you need a team of professionals to get you to the finish line. One person alone will struggle and, and there's no reason why you can't call upon the expertise of others to help you achieve your goals. And that can come in a lot of forms. For me, from a health you know, perspective, it was a trainer, it was a masseuse, it was my doctor. You know, it, you know, all these people come into play. And um, but you know, from a you know, from a homeowner standpoint, right? It could be a, a carpenter, it could be a plumber. You know, just to get things done right. And and you really need to call in professionals. Um, the next race I ran was was also a major. And that was the London Marathon. And the London Marathon is the, um, the largest fundraising marathon in, in the world. And, uh, and it's crazy big. I mean, some of these races are 40, 45,000 runners. And um, in London, uh, it really shows that you, you can be successful. And when you are successful, you can give in abundance, right? You can help others and and they don't really teach that in business school and I'm I'm a professor part time at a at a at a university here in Detroit and I teach supply chain management and I always make sure that's part of my lesson is that you know you need to be successful you're here at the university because you're going to be successful but you have to understand that with that success comes responsibility and when you give back you tend to become more successful. It feeds on itself. And, and I'm certainly, uh, representative of that where I've been very fortunate and again, do what I can to share my story to help people. Um, Australia, my sixth continent, I ran the outback. So if you're familiar with Uluru, this giant rock in the middle of the, the outback, uh, you, I ran a marathon basically in the shadows of Uluru and, and, uh, I brought my daughter with me, and this, this is really the only uh, international race where I, I brought some in my family. And I really, uh, it, it came to me that creating these memories with your children and bonding with them is so important. And a lot of parents don't find the time to do that. And because life moves so fast, right? Everyone's working, both parents are working. Um, you know, like a lot of people, I travel every week for my job, so it's very difficult. But my, my father started a tradition uh, with me some, you know, 40 years ago that when, when the child turns 15, you get to go on a father-child trip to create that experience because, a lot you know, mom's always there, dad's always working, and so it's at a time in a child's life when you can really bond, I don't know what about 15 it is, And this year I'm taking my son on a two week trip. I'm not running on this one, but, but we're going to spend that time together. And I think it's really important. And I, I've told this to so many people and now my friends take their kids on trips when they become 15 or 16 years old to create that bond, which uh, you don't get the time back. The, um, the, the most important lesson was on continent number seven. And uh, I, I went to Antarctica to run a marathon and, and, Really, uh, this is the one you work hardest for, right? Kenya was tough. It was hot. But Antarctica is Antarctica, right? It's it's cold. It's windy. And there's a four-year waiting list to get on the ship, at least when I signed up. I signed up in 2012. And they only bring 100 people per ship. They bring two ships a year. And they run 100 people on Saturday, 100 people on Sunday. And uh, I really struggled with my training for this one which is unusual because I trained in Michigan. It's very cold, you know, so I'm used to that. But uh, through my training, I just, I struggled and I spent a lot of time with my doctor trying to figure out what was wrong. And we went through all the tests, you know, stress tests and, you know, and, and just everything he could think of. And he couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. He said, okay, look, when you get back from Antarctica, we'll figure it out. But you're fine. You're good to go. Have a great time. You know, it may not be as fast as you want, but it's your last continent. You've waited four years I, you know, I think it cost me around $10,000. Right. So you can't just say, ah, you know, forget about it. You're in, right. You, you've got to go. And, uh, through the trip, I really struggled. It was a, a great adventure and, uh, you know, through the Drake passage. And so I, um, uh, I struggled through it. I ran half of it and then I kind of walked around the other half. Uh, I got back to the ship. I kind of stabilized myself and rested. I spent a lot of time in the bunk. And when I got home, they discovered a 95% blockage in my LAD artery. So that's the one they call the widow maker. And, and so um, we wouldn't have found it had I not been meeting with my doctor consistently, because we went through a number of tests when I got back, pulmonary tests, allergy tests, And working with my doctor, you know, I told him, you know, what I heard from my body, I listened for my body, I act as my own advocate. And a lot of people don't do that. and, And really pressed my doctor to make some decisions with me to get some advanced testing. So we found this blockage. And he was surprised by it. I'd run marathons with my doctor. And he you know, said, geez, you know, uh, I, you know, I can't believe it. You're a marathon runner. Your heart is so strong. But the problem wasn't my heart. It was my arteries, right? It was the result of a lot of years of, of bad food as a result of diabetes. And uh, now I've made a lot of changes. And it's been, uh, it's, it's been a, a challenge. But it's, you can, it can either be the worst thing that ever happened to you or the best thing that ever happened to you. For me, it's really the best thing that ever happened to me.
0: You know, so I'm curious because this, the process of running marathons on seven different continents, um, represents a amount of being all in, um, that, that, um, you just, you got to be all in, in a certain way. And is this how you are across your life or is running something special for you?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's, I guess you could say it, it's how I am across my life. I mean, I, uh, I'm, like I said, I've been very fortunate. I've always worked, I work hard. I work in, in, a, in a very tough town, uh, in a tough industry in, in, uh, in automotive. But uh, I've, I've been fortunate to uh, have always um, pursued my career in supply chain management. Uh, right now, I'm vice president of logistics innovation for a software company. And in the past, I've worked for tier one automotive companies. Uh, tier one is someone that makes the parts that go in the cars and work for those type of companies and work for third party logistics companies and really advanced my career uh, where I've been, you know, I think very successful and very happy. And at the same time, I've been able to teach at a university and mentor students And so I've always, I always have something that I'm doing, progressing, moving forward and, and enjoying and having fun with. And I don't think that, so, you know, running marathons isn't something new. It's just a different goal, but a much harder goal. And it, and it's not something that you can just do quickly, you don't just say, Hey, I I think I'm going to, you know, I'm, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to put together a puzzle or I'm going to, you know, it's something that takes months and months to train for one marathon, and then to actually do many marathons, it it takes many years. And so you have to always be looking at that next step in the progression to reach your goal.
0: So something else about this, though, is one can look at it and say, okay, checklist, seven continents, what are the marathons? I'm going to train, you know, I'll, I'll have the outcome. But you can't really do something like that at least I think I mean, some people can. Most of us can't do something if we don't enjoy the process itself, right? Um, because it's a lot of training. It's a lot of preparation. And that's just on the physical side of things. There's also a lot of, um, you know, you had to pay for these things. And it's not, you know, it's not at all cheap to, to do these types of things. And you had to have time away from your family. And you had to have time away from the career. So there's something beyond just a goal accomplishment that, that drove you to continue to do that. So tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Well, you know, when when running becomes part of your lifestyle, you know, you're up every day at 4:30 or 5 a.m. to get your miles in. I, I estimate that I ran about 7,000 miles in the course of running these these seven marathons. And um, uh, the one nice thing, you know, for my wife is that you know, at nine o'clock at night, she always knew where I was at. I was up in bed sleeping because I had to get up at 4:30 in the morning to run, and so she was very supportive. And when you when you tell people that you have this goal at first people think you're crazy, right? Because you've only run two marathons, you know, you now you're going to run on seven continents and you say, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And people started to take me seriously when I came back from Kenya and had, you know, thousands of photographs and people started to say, I think you're going to do this. And it wasn't just my friends and my family. But my coworkers became supportive and the, the people that I worked for became supportive. And so when it came time to take two weeks to go to Australia, they're like, I'll see you send pictures, you know. And, you know, I come home and there's pictures of my door, you know, of my office door of me running, you know, from, you know, that they found on the uh, race page. And so people will rally around you if you communicate a positive goal and a realistic goal. Um, it was realistic to me because I knew I was going to do it. It wasn't, I think I'm going to do this, but it was, I'm going to do this and I'm committed to do it. And before you know it, you've got people wanting to talk to you about running and people sharing their running stories. And you really... Surround yourself with like-minded people because you're in running clubs, and people search you out because they hear about you. And so, um, for instance, because I travel, I would visit uh, assembly plants uh, in Mexico and in different parts of the U.S. And I would send a note to the HR director in advance that I'm saying, look, I'm going to be down there for a meeting on Monday, and I'm going to come in early, and could you find out if there's anybody that works there that runs and I'll do a group run with everybody that that's at the plant that wants to go. And I remember one day I had must've had eight or 10 people, uh, in a plant in Mexico and we went out and ran and we had their security team came out on bikes to make sure that we were safe. And it was really a great experience, but you bring people in and then you become, uh, become the running guy. But, um, but everyone becomes a little more invested in in what you're doing, and it's a great message to get people out and exercising. People brought their wives, and and it was just a wonderful experience.
0: Did you ever have a mon- moment where um, you either thought about quitting or that it was particularly hard to stay with the goal?
1: Um. Yeah. I mean, there there was some injuries along the way. Injuries are part of running. And you're trying to keep on a timetable, and so originally I wasn't going to run the London Marathon. I was going to run the Rome Marathon, and I had, uh, had a had a particular injury. I'm not. I don't quite remember what it was, and um, so I was in Rome uh, on business with you know, with a coworker and dear friend of mine, and I said, you know, I just don't think I'm up for this. And he said, great, you know, let's let's go drink. And, and that was kind of uh, our weekend in Rome. Uh, and then you think, okay, how am I going to get this done? And then, you know, I made a few phone calls, got myself into the London Marathon, and and was able to run it. But there's there's times that were tough. Um, but I never really doubted that I was going to accomplish all seven marathons. It was just a matter of, okay, I've got to adjust my my plans, change the direction a little bit. Um, and uh, and then and again, you know, when you you know, I learned something really valuable uh, from a runner I met in Rio. He had run 200 marathons, which for me was incredible. I'd run that was that was my second, and uh, and I said, well, how do you how do you feel about you know our our run today? And he looked at me. He goes, eh. He goes, you know, some days is your day, some days it's not. You, you know, you just you just got to run. And, and that always stuck with me is that, um, you know, you just got to keep moving forward and that's what matters, you know, you'll find success.
0: Well, I want to, you know, sort of zoom out here because, you know, we talk a lot about doing your best creative work and doing the work that drives your business and your career on the podcast here. Right. And so running, Mm -hmm. it's the conversation, but it's an analogy, right? It's, it's a metaphor for other aspects of life right? Um. We can say the same thing, like if we talked to someone who wrote seven books in seven years, right? It would sound remarkably similar, right? Um, it would sound remarkably similar in the sense where it's like, yeah, some days it's your day and some days it's not your day, right? That happens every time you sit down, right? I'm in the middle of writing a book and I can definitely say there are some days where I'm in it. And then there are some days where I'm not, and I'm just there typing and I'm, you know, going, through, I'm going through the training, I'm going through the rehearsal, right? Um, it could be business building, it could be whatever it is, it's, it will have the same sort of thing. And, and the reason I'm asking around the difficulties and the challenges and what it's like is, begin we can step back and say, oh, where was that time in my work or where was that time in my life where I wavered, not because it was difficult, But I wavered because I wasn't sure whether I was going to do it or not. I wasn't fully committed to the goal. And that's what caused the wavering more so than whatever the difficulty was. Right. So I just wanted to draw those out that that's the parallel here.
1: Okay. You know, it's funny is that once I stated my goal out loud, once I said it to people, I'm not the kind of person that will want to kind of eat my words I, you know, once I, once people knew that's what I wanted to do, I knew I was going to do it. And so if there was any doubt that I was going to do it, it was between the time that I thought of the idea and I told the first person, because once I told the first person, which I'm sure was one of my best friends, once I said that, I knew that I was going to take a lifelong of her, you know, a lifetime of harassment for saying something that foolish So by the time I said it, I knew I was going to do it and I was good and ready to do it. Um, But, you know, there was a lot of reasons why. One is that I know that I'm the type of person that in order to keep running that many miles, I need a big goal. So because I my goal was to run a marathon. I did that. Then my goal was to run a second marathon, which was harder than the first. Um, I did that. And then, okay, how do you keep going? You have, to have, you have to have an eye on the prize. There has to be something there for you. And for me, I knew that I needed to run to work on my diabetes, to work on my weight issues, you know, all the things that men go through as they get older, um, you know, you've got to be active. And, and I meet people all the time and you're like, how old are you? You, know, you can't believe how old they are um, because they're not active. Right. And, you know, people, you know, people that are at a computer all day and aren't doing things. And and so everybody has to get out and do something. And I knew I had to if I was going to uh, see my kids, you know, get married and and everything and all the things that you want to do. So um, I knew that for me, I need a big goal. I need a big target. And that was the biggest target I can think of was running around the world. And uh, because I was a traveler. It wasn't, it wasn't that difficult for me to imagine traveling around the world because I, I think when I started this, I, I probably had 400,000 freaking flyer miles you know, to, you know to, to play with. And so it wasn't that I hadn't traveled before. It was just that I'm going to have a new reason to travel. There's going to be a new purpose. And it was a great adventure. It was the, the, the most remarkable five years of my life.
0: Which of the races um, was the hardest
1: and why? Uh, well, Antarctica was was difficult for a couple of reasons. Um, the, the journey to get there, we're on a very small Russian research vessel. It's about the size of a football field, right? And you're going through Drake Passage, uh, which is described as the most treacherous waters in the world, with 30-foot swells. So, you know, a, a swell's the equivalent of a wave, right? And it's just crashing on the boat and so you know everyone is sick and then after two and a half days you pull in a port and they say okay we're gonna we're we're gonna go set up the the course and we'll come back tomorrow and tell you what it's like and uh, so we ran from the Russian research base to the Chinese research base which sounds like a long way Russia to China but it was only 2.17 miles So we had to repeat that 2.17 miles 12 times in freezing temperatures, sometimes 50-mile-an-hour winds in rocks and muck and mud. And, of course, I wasn't feeling well. And so that race was very, very difficult, but the reward was wonderful. Um, Not only did we get our marathon medal for that race, but we got – our seven continent medals, because that was our seventh continent, at least for about 12 of us. And then we hiked glaciers, and we kayaked through iceberg fields. We went to penguin colonies. So the experience was fantastic, but that race was the hardest um, on me physically because of the hills, because of my heart condition, and, uh, and that one was uh, the, the toughest, but not the one I enjoyed the most. The one I enjoyed the most was the one with my daughter in Australia.
0: You know that, that reminds was the me. Easiest one. Yeah, that reminds me of um, military training because there are some times where you have to run. Um, never, never my most fun activities, but it was always worse when you had to do a loop like that, where you had to do it twelve times because the monotony is what, what breaks you much yeah. more so than if it's like a loop where you know you could run twenty three miles and come back. It's like okay, at least it's not this monotony of going back and forth and oh here I go through this mud pit again right? Or here I go around this thing yeah. again. So that would, that would definitely, I mean, a marathon in Antarctica are already two things that don't sound really, really good, but then having to do 12 times back and forth, I'm like, nope, I'm out.
1: <laughs> you, you know what the, the most, the, the best thing about it is because you're with a small group of people for basically 10 days, right? On the boat and you know, the whole experience. You become so close to these people because you all you're sharing the same experience. You've all worked to get there, and uh, and then you're put into this this hellish environment. And for me, it wasn't too bad because I'm from Michigan. But there are people from California and Arizona and you know you know New Zealand and all parts of the world, and they're freezing. And I'm like you know I took my hat off because I was hot (laughs) you know and and so uh, you know there's just there's so many things that are rewarding about about the experience. So many things.
0: Now, Mike, you do realize you just compared the hellscape of Antarctica to Michigan, right?
1: <laughs> well, our winter at its worst is comparable to Antarctica's summer at its best. And so when we went it, we, we went in March. And so there was some snow. Certainly there's snow everywhere. But the temperatures were, I think, above 10 degrees. So that's comparable to Michigan. So it's, it really wasn't that bad for me. I'm acclimated to it, you know, but I tell you the people from California, people from Arizona, they were cold. Absolutely. They were cold.
0: Yeah. Um, so let's not put you on Michigan's tourism board um, for, for a lot of yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm teasing, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, we moved to Oregon from um, Lincoln, Nebraska and some, sometimes in the winters, um, it could be quite rough, right? there in, in those midwestern states absolutely. so you mentioned Antarctica being the hardest you mentioned, um Australia being the most enjoyable. Which one was the most transformative for you?
1: Well, it, transformative, yeah, you know, it was Africa. I mean you for for so many different reasons, we you know we go to the zoo, we take our kids to the zoo and you see the animals and Detroit is a wonderful zoo. A lot of cities do. But, uh, the race itself was on, I think it was a 68,000 acre preserve. And so twice a day we went on safari to take photographs of, of the giraffes and the rhinos and all these wonderful animals. And, uh, and you, you get a different sense of appreciation for the importance of, uh, of, of, of keeping these animals on our, on our earth, right? You know, rhinos and how they're hunted and elephants, how they're hunted. And, uh, because it was part of the Tusk foundation, the director of Tusk actually sat all of us down as a group because we're part of this VIP group and talked to us about what they're doing to stop, um, the poaching of these animals. And certainly security plays a big role in it, but the market plays an even bigger role. And so a lot of the money that they raise goes towards advertising and education in China, where there's a demand for the you know the, the tusk or whatever part of the animal that that they turn into, you know, some kind of local medicine or whatever they use it for. And and so that really changes your outlook on um, on, on just how few there are and how magnificent they are in in their natural habitat. And um, the one night we were on safari, and I noticed a number of signs. And the signs said, you know, 10 kilometer, 14 kilometer, 18 kilometer. And I realized that we were on safari looking for lions, looking for elephants, on the very paths that we were going to run tomorrow morning uh, for our marathon. And so in the morning, they brought out a couple of helicopters and they went, flew overhead to scare all the big game away from the runners so that we were safe. And, um, and so that was a great experience. And, of course, um, when we visited the schoolhouses, uh, you know, if you've been to a grade school, I'm sure you remember from your grade school, there was always posters around the walls with letters, right, and, you know, pictures and things that you could learn. The the conditions of the school were so bad; there were tin roofs and there were dirt floors that they couldn't put up posters on the wall. So what they had to do was they had to uh, stitch uh, any anything you know uh, any message into fabric, so there'd be more like a sheet on the wall with the alphabet stitched into it. And the the hanging that impacted me the most was one that had pictures of a knife. A razor blade, broken glass, and it was to teach the children about home safety. Because if you cut yourself, you could literally get an infection that you died from. Where here, you know, you put you know, you clean it and you put band-aid on it and you send the kids back out again. In Africa it's not that way. And and so teaching these basics to the kids to keep them safe. Is important and and parents, um, you know, all around the world want some of the you know the same things. They want to have a safe house for their children to live in. They want good schools and they want the ability to uh, for their kids to make a living and do better than they they do. Right? It's it's all about that, you know, you know, having a safe environment and being able to provide. And it's no different there than it is you know here in the states. You know, people are. You know, they want the same things. And it really struck home with me in Africa.
0: So, after you finished the seven marathons and seven continents, um, what was the six months following um, that experience like for you emotionally? What was that emotional journey at that point? Well,
1: you know, it was it was pretty difficult because you come home and there's, there's a bit of a celebration, right? you know, my aunt made a, a cake that looked like an iceberg and, you know, we did a lot of celebrations and, and people congratulating me and that was fantastic. But, you know, I didn't feel well. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I'd quickly gotten sicker until they discovered that, that blockage. So I had two angioplasties. I had, um, uh, a stent, um, put into my LAD artery and, you know, the they, you know I'm so appreciative of the doctors and what they did because they, you know, they sa- literally saved my life. I could have had a, um, a major heart attack, but the after effects and things I experienced after the surgery, I wasn't really well prepared for. And in a couple ways, is that, um, you know, their preparation was you're going to feel great in two days, you'll be back running in four days, right? You're you know you're going to be a, a new man, and it really wasn't the case, and so I I'd struggled um, in a lot of ways, and after doing a lot of research on my own, I realized it was the side effects from the medicines that they put me on, and of course, we all watch television, right? So every every commercial has a, you know, a lawyer come out at the end and tell you, you know, you know, you can lose your hair, you can lose your toenails, all these things that, that happens. Well, a lot of these medications have side effects that affect you, you know, from just you know, not only how you feel in terms of you know your chest feels tight or whatever but there's also side effects like you know uh, paranoia depression um, you know energy issues and so I would experienced these and of course went in for my check and said doctor you know I don't feel right this is it's this is not how you know this is not what I was sold I was sold I'm gonna be good as new and I don't feel good as new and um, and so it took a couple of meetings to have the doctor actually want to change my medicine because they don't want to do that because this is this works. I see a thousand people and 999 people have great response rates. I'm the one person that doesn't. And so I had a really push to get the medications changed where it took months and months and I realized that there is a um, an opportunity for hospitals to improve patient and family preparation and care after these procedures. Of course, mine is considered somewhat minor, right? It, of course, it, it, it's minor unless you're the one getting the procedure, then it's major. But compared to open-heart surgery and, and, and um, bypasses, it, it's minor. In fact, uh, the, the most common question to me the day of my surgery was, is this your first angioplasty? Like, well, of course it is. Well, you know, it's because so many people come back for more because they don't change their lifestyle. They don't get over whatever it is they did that caused it. And so, um, so you know, I'm just, you know, I've met a lot of people and talked about, you know, what the opportunities are in terms of how do you improve patient care? How do you improve family care to make sure people are prepared to discuss and continue to listen to their body to get the right treatment that they need to move forward. And it was difficult for me. And it took, I took a year and a half for me to get to the point where I was ready to see a dietician and change, make some big changes to, and I was, I'm a marathon runner. I was already doing the right things, but to make that next level of commitment to make sure that I could continue to be healthy. And I did other things too. I I changed careers. You know, I I had a high stress job. I recognized it. And I, uh, I walked in and I said, you know what, this isn't working for me anymore. I'm going to go do something that I love to do. And I enjoy to do and with people that I enjoy working with. And so I made a change. So um, those are things that I had to do. And I so wish that someone would have worked with me a little bit closer when I went through this to say, okay, these are the things that you need to evaluate. What caused it, you know, what, what you can do to avoid it. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and it's not like, you know, uh, you can, you know, hindsight is 2020, right? You know, I can't do anything about it. I only know what I went through, but now I'm trying to influence others to say, okay, listen, you know, if you're out there exercising, listen to your body, make sure you communicate with your doctor because the doctor can't hear what your body's saying. Only you can sit, only you can hear it. So, you know, listen, listen to your body, keep moving forward, talk to professionals, make sure you've got a team around you because, you know, a lot of people have heart attacks and die when they exercise. I, you know, my brother had a heart attack, you know, climbing some stairs and he's seven years younger than I am. And he did, luckily he, he survived it. But, you know, I, I always think to myself, boy, I wish that, you know, he didn't have to have that experience and that he would have maybe had a symptom or something that he would have heard, um, and been able to do something about. And he changed his lifestyle. He's doing great. And, um, you know, so that's, you know, that's really what I, what I took from it is, okay, how, how do I, you know, communicate this to other people? Because, you know, If one person avoids a very bad situation or recovers faster, you know, then it made my journey worth it.
0: Absolutely. Um, There's another reason I asked that question is that um, what I've seen after interviewing and talking to a lot of people is there's a post-accomplishment depression that can often come. Now, you had... You had a surgery that had sort of biochemical responses, but a lot of people will report like, hey, mm-hmm. I had this huge goal, and then once I accomplished it, like six months, nine months after that, I really didn't know what to do with myself. Like I like I was depressed in a way that I was not prepared for. Um, now, you had, a, again, with your medications, I think you had a different scenario that was causing some of these issues, and I was just curious if you noticed some of that about yourself, but you may not be able to tell.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I I think that was probably a contributing factor. I hadn't really thought of it from that perspective, but you know, I, I have been kind of searching for that next big goal. Right? Okay, what do I do next? I've spent five years of my life, you know, accomplishing that, and and um, now what what's been great is now that you know I have the story. My goal is to reach people and to um, hopefully help a few people, and I um, I speak, uh, you know. i Because I work at the university, so I mentor students. I do a lot of things that are very rewarding. Um, But yeah, that that probably had a little something to do with it. You know, okay, how do I top this? What do I do now, right? And um, and uh, you know, you know, maybe you know, maybe that's it. But uh, you know, my goal is to lead a healthy, happy life. And um, and I'm running two marathons this fall, so I I I still have some running to do. So uh yeah, I just keep moving keep moving forward
0: Well you may have already answered I was going to ask you what your big goal is now you might still be looking okay. for it right but what's 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 calling you um these days that that really will make you um, stand up and respond to it
1: Well you know there there's uh there's the six major marathons uh which are Tokyo London New York Berlin Chicago and Boston I've run three of them I run uh Tokyo uh London and New York so uh, this fall I'll be going to Berlin to run Berlin probably next year I'll run Chicago and then uh like most people you want to end up uh, running Boston because that's the ultimate race and uh at some point my speed will uh I'll get old enough that my speed will qualify for it so I'm hoping maybe before I'm 60 to qualify um but uh, yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna work away at the, at at those uh, six majors, and um, just continue to uh, you know to work and travel and, and really enjoy myself. Uh, say I've got a, a two week trip with my son coming up to to continue to bond with him, and and then uh, I'll probably uh, I owe my wife another trip. So uh, uh, she keeps telling me that you you run all these races and you go everywhere. Where where do we go? So last year I took her on a special trip. Next year I'll do the same and, uh, and make the most of it. So, you know, I, I, you know, I, am I'm very fortunate. Uh, I, I work hard to be able to do some of these things. And, and so, uh, I want to make sure that, uh, I'm able to, uh, to enjoy, to enjoy the benefits of my family.
0: So, as the guest for today's podcast, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge, depending upon which one most resonates with you. So, based upon everything that we've talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do?
1: Well, you know, I, I'd like to challenge our, um, our listeners to do something that that isn't health oriented, because I think that this is um, this challenge is is, is really Uh, will help each person and help others. And I call it a mentorship challenge. And I think that mentorship is one of the most important things that we can do, not only as we age and gain experience, but for those of us that are young. And so what I try to tell people is find someone to mentor and teach them to be a mentor. So if, if you're a senior manager and you're mentoring someone that's new to the organization, encourage them to reach out back to their high school or back to their college and mentor somebody. Because the only way that you can sustain a model where mentorship is successful is if you teach people to be mentors. And so uh, that's the challenge. And, and I think that the reward that you get and what you learn from that younger person that you're mentoring uh you know they can teach you how to use twitter they can do t- all these these wonderful tools out there and so um i think that would be that would be the challenge that i would i would put out there for people
0: that's fantastic mike thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your story and sort of the insights of what it's what it's like to run marathons around the world and what you learn from doing so it's been a great conversation thank
1: you very much It's
0: all my pleasure. All right, listener. So you heard it from Mike. What can you do to start mentoring someone today? Um, No matter where you are in your career, no matter where you are in your life, there's someone out there that can benefit from your expertise, that can benefit from your experience, and can benefit from the experience of being mentored so they know how to pay it forward. So there is someone out there. Your job is to find them. Until next time, stand tall.